following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. We're continuing uh, our series that I began at the beginning of the year that I called the Calibration Series. The idea is that um, fine instruments need to be uh, calibrated because over time they they lose their accuracy and we're in a time as I've been saying where the world is shaking and uh, we didn't know like last week we thought everything was shaking last weekend not knowing though maybe some people expected what was going to be happening with Russia and Ukraine to happen but uh, May I say, things have gotten way worse than they were last weekend. And um, I've been saying for years that we're in the noisiest time in history. The amount of, in quotes, information that is thrown at us constantly. It's never been like this before. And it's so hard to know what, who to believe, what perspective is, is correct um, I was just thinking yesterday on that on that very issue, just dealing with. I actually saw a, a post by a an American journalist about some of the principles that they learned in doing journalism about checking sources and and just some very common things that they're all taught in journalism school about how to portray what really is happening and how to be suspicious of certain kinds of reports based on the words that they're saying and. I'm not explaining that too well, but anyway, I was thinking on those things, and, and then I realized, because one of the things that my wife Robin and I have discovered years ago, because uh, years ago when we were living in Vancouver, uh, I, had an, I was in a, a front-page article in the Vancouver Sun. Uh, it had to do with Jewish believers and the Jewish community's concern about what was up with sharing the gospel with Jewish people. And we were amazed at the details that the reporter who came to our home and had lunch with us, uh, the details that she got wrong. We were right there talking to her. And then years ago here in in Ottawa, um, a professor at Ottawa U, who's a a journalist himself, was doing a piece in the Ottawa Magazine. Maybe you've seen this magazine. It's called the Ottawa Magazine. Did a piece on large families. And we have a large family. And so he came and the photographer came. And, and again, when the article came out, it's like, it says, talks about something that Robin said. Well, she didn't even say that. And some of it maybe was some, something that somebody else said and then other things. Like, how could they get it wrong so quickly? And so we've learned that the closer we are to a news story, um, how, how much more wrong that news story seems. And the further away we are from a news story, the more accurate it seems. Well, no, if I may say, no, duh. The less we know about something, the more true the report seems to be. So it's really, really difficult. As I was thinking about this yesterday, I realized, hey, I, we've been married over uh, 41 years. Is it going to be 42? We're married in 1980, so it's, yeah, 42 years. It's, it should be easy. Um, so, uh, and... Over the past few years, Robin and I have been learning things about each other that we didn't fully understand for four decades. 
And we've been very, very close. We've worked together. Um, in, in, in the same thing I've done, a, a lot of my work has been at home. We, we've spent a ton of time together, more than a lot of couples do. And uh, we have so many similarities in our background because we were raised in the same neighborhood. We're from the same cultural background. We went to the same candy store as kids. And so we have a, we've got an advantage about understanding each other. And yet 40 years goes by and we're still, there's things that happen that we misunderstood. And that's with two people living in the same house. And yet we think that we can portray what's going on here, there, and everywhere because we read it or we saw it on TV. We do know that things are really out of sorts. And and my impression is it's affected us all. And so from time to time or maybe frequently, we need to make sure that we're recalibrated to God's word. The Bible, as I've said, and I want to, I want to share this briefly for those of you that um, um, are here for the first time this morning. And if you are interested in this series, it's all, uh, it's all posted online. This is part six. I'm hoping to finish it, God willing, next week. Um, so what, you know, what does the Bible actually provide for us with regard to our the challenges that we face in knowing how to navigate this confusing world in which we live. Well, the Bible provides God's lens for life. The Bible is not a filter that changes what's out there, but it's rather the sharpest and clearest lens by which we can see reality. I notice among believers there's this idea as if there's various versions of reality and as believers and those who uphold God's word, we have God's version of reality and that's what we are loyal to. No, that is not correct. There is only reality. There's reality and then there's the fake, the lies, and that's it. The Bible isn't God's opinion It's God's provision of life the way he designed it and how we are called to effectively navigate reality. That's what God has provided in the scripture. And what's wonderful, one of the many things that's wonderful about scripture is it's an honest reflection of life the way it really is. It gives us the opportunity to truly know God and walk in his truth. Now, a lot of us approach the Bible as if it's going to give us a prescription for life. Simple, simple do this, don't do that. And while there are some do's and don'ts in Scripture, most of the Bible's not written that way. Instead, it's a complex story that requires careful thought, pondering, and prayer. And if we allow ourselves to engage, or more rightly, be engaged by Scripture, we have the opportunity to live life as God meant us to. And so in this calibration series, I I actually embarked on this because I wanted to share the story that we're dealing with today, dealing with Elijah on Mount Carmel. But I wanted to provide a, a a larger context for it by talking about the establishment of the kings 
in the history of Israel. And we saw and have been seeing in the books of Samuel and Kings how they provide powerful insight into the dynamics of living a godly life in a broken, sinful world. We saw the first king, Saul, a king like the other nations, and how he started off well and then was a complete disaster. And in the context of Saul's ungodliness and rebellion and wickedness, even though he was chosen of God, we see the emergence of a man after God's own heart, David. And we see, we saw how even amidst such corruption and even jealousy, murderous jealousy on the part of Saul towards David, we, could, we see through David how one could live an effective godly life in the midst of, may I say, complete craziness. David, even though he failed, and we saw, how, unlike Saul, when Saul failed, he just went deeper and deeper into his sin. When David sinned, he was confronted, he confessed, and he was forgiven. And he left a strong foundation for his dynasty to continue, beginning with Solomon. King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he went completely off the rails and turned to idols because of the women he loved. We talked about that last week, and as I just said, the whole series is online if you want to check it out. Due to Solomon's sin, the kingdom of Israel became fragmented. Because of God's promise to David, David, God promised to David that he would always have a son on the throne of the southern part of the land of Israel called Judah. And that, that promise to David has continued to this very day because his greatest son, the Lord Jesus, continues to sit on David's throne. All authority in heaven and on earth actually has been given to him. While God preserved David's dynasty, he, as the way the scripture says it, he ripped out of David's dynasty in the time of Solomon all the other tribes of the north, and that area was uh, either called Israel or Ephraim, and this northern kingdom had the other tribes and um, was not under David's rule. Out of those two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, there were about 40 kings total in their combined history. And only about eight of those 40 kings showed any signs of godliness whatsoever. And yet in the midst of all that corruption and all that sin, there are tales of godly people navigating a broken world just like we are called to do in our day. And so I, I want, we're going to start by, by looking at a very, very down time, negative time in the history of the northern kingdom. I'm reading 1 Kings verses 16, 29 through 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, 
who was the first king of the northern kingdom. As it was a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so this wicked king Ahab set up formal worship to two false gods, Baal, in Hebrew Baal, and Asherah, or in Hebrew Asherah. Now, Baal is simply a Hebrew word for Lord or Master. It's actually quite similar to maybe you've heard the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai means Lord or Master, and it's the key word that's used to describe the God of Israel. But Baal means the same thing. It's a synonym. But it was used to describe various false gods. In particularly, it described the god of weather. With the amount of attention we pay to the... I have three weather apps on my phone. And uh, we, have, we have an interesting relationship with the weather. Um, and he was usually depicted as a bull. Now Israel, like, wh- like why would Israel fall in to Baal worship? So Israel had a, a very fragile climate. Unlike Egypt, where Israel had been in bondage to slavery. Egypt, which was not that far away, had a dependable, ongoing water source, the Nile River, that made that section of Egypt fertile. And so they depended on their natural resource. Then God takes Israel out of Egypt and sends them to the promised land, a land that depended on the heavens to provide the rain. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 12, where it says the land of Israel is not like the land of Egypt. And so in a very special way, Israel had to depend upon God for the provision of rain. And it's the, the dry season and the, and, the, and the rainy season are very set in Israel. And if the rainy season doesn't come through, it likely means drought. And in those days, of course, they didn't have uh, the systems that we have today that if we end up with a drought in the, in the Canadian prairies, well, then we can import food from somewhere else. And we're a lot more like Egypt because we rely on our natural resources and our systems for our provision. Most of us, most of the time, not all of us all of the time, but most of us most of the time, we might thank God for our food, give us this day our daily bread, but we count on the systems to work. We count on government. We count on transportation. We count on the energy sector. We count on all sorts of things. And for most of us, for most of our lives, it's worked. But in the land of Israel, at this stage of their history, there was nothing that they could do. It's fascinating to go to Israel today and see how they have conquered 
this fragile climate. And there are no water issues today between the type of irrigation that they use and the desalination process that they have in, uh, by using ocean water. So Jerusalem, which has very little water, actually everybody drinks ocean water, uh, clean, pure, 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 ocean water. And so there again, we have so relied, and I, I did a bit of a series on this um, um, last year, of our reliance upon science and technology, the works of our own hands. That's what we rely on. Israel did not have that didn't have that at, at their disposal. And so the reliance upon God to provide the rains at the right time was an ongoing issue for the people of Israel. Now, when we're in a state of need, when we are in danger, um, we will do all sorts of things to reduce our anxiety We'll try to find all sorts of resources to take care of ourselves and our families. And that's what the people of Israel did. It it was difficult, scary to rely on God. And often what what would happen is there was this sin cycle that would take place. And it's always been an issue for human beings. According to God's word, If the rains did not come in ancient Israel, it was because of the people's sin. And the people were already turning to other gods, going their own way. And so then God would hold back the rain. But instead of turning back to God, they would look around at the the surrounding cultures and nations and imitate what they were doing. Oh, worshiping Baal seems to work for them. So maybe it's going to work for us. And, and interestingly, what Israel was doing at this time is they were kind of combining a little bit of the God of Israel with a little bit of Baal. Maybe it's the same God. Maybe worship one, maybe worship the other. You know, try to cover all your bases, so to speak. Um, and again, this is a very common human thing as we're trying to sur- uh, survive, never mind thrive. And so Baal was a god of the weather, and by doing various kinds of illicit, often sexual activities with, with, with special priestesses and this sort of thing, they thought they could get this god to respond by sending the rain. Asherah was the consort or spouse of Baal, and she was a fertility god. And you can see how these two go together. We've got the rains, we've got the land. And again, by doing all sorts of grotesque, sinful activities, they thought they could provoke uh, Asherah to show favor and allow there to be um, healthy crops. Now, we know that idols are actually nothing. But in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, Paul's talking about food sacrifice to idols and and this sort of thing. He makes it clear that while the idols are nothing, they actually represent demons. And so by Israel engaging in the practices of these false gods, they were actually engaging demons. 
the, the demon influence of the false gods is not based on this little statues or large figurines that they would create to represent these gods. These gods are actually found in the practices of what the people were doing. And so while in much of the world today, there's a, a lot of the world continues to worship literal idols, but let's not be fooled when we, whether we're believers or not believers, when we engage in the practices of the false gods, we are engaging the demons represented by these idols. That is why, that is why we must confront abortion. That is why we must confront pornography in the church and outside of the church. We must confront fornication. We must confront, not because we don't like it, and not because God doesn't like it. We confront these things because we love people. And by engaging in sinful behavior, people are being dragged down, and they're being dehumanized, they're being demonized, and their lives and the lives of those closest to them are being destroyed. And so our modern to each his own is a, is a hell-inspired, demonic principle that is destroying people's lives. So that was the state of the kingdom of Israel this time. And out of nowhere, so to speak, in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah appears. We read, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. How fitting it is that God's judgment on the worship of Baal and Asherah would be drought. And so then Elijah takes off for about three years. So it's a drought, it's a famine, it's terrible. Um, and God takes care of him. Elijah thought he was the only faithful one in all of Israel. He was wrong about that. We're going to talk about that uh, more next week. But there weren't that many. And there he was in a very, very difficult time. There really was drought. Drought leads to famine. And yet God took him to a brook. And he was able to drink the water from that brook. And God sent birds, ravens, to bring meat to him. He was there until the brook dried up. And then God sent him outside of the land of Israel to a widow, and, and through this, this, this widow provided food miraculously for him and her family. In the midst of that, her son dies, and then God uses Elijah to raise him from the dead. Miracle after miracle. You know, we often wonder, why don't we see miracles? We don't see miracles because we're not allowing ourselves to be in situations where we need miracles. God has promised to provide. And if he, he can provide through a full grocery store or he can provide by sending ravens. The main thing is that w the question is, are we following the Lord? And so then after three years, Elijah reemerges to confront the evil in the land and call the people back to God. Verse 17 of chapter 17, we read, when Ahab saw Elijah, ah Ahab said to him, is it you, you, tr you troubler of Israel? And it's so Typical, when people are trapped in the darkness of sin, how they blame shift, how we blame shift. Elijah answered, verse 18, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the, ba uh, followed the Baals. 
Continue verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So Elijah had challenged Ahab to bring the prophets of Baal and Asherah to Mount Carmel for a showdown. If you, it's no, people rarely comment on this. The prophets of Asherah didn't even show up. Only the prophets of Baal did. And, um, and so it talks about all Israel, at least a representative of all Israel are there in this, this large area. And the challenge is, is how long will you go limping between two different opinions? And the Hebrew here uh, signifies kind of walking on cracked ground, where, you, where it's easy to lose your, your footing. And so what he was saying the people were doing is they were, they were kind of sort of worshiping the Lord and then worshiping the Baals and trying to mix it all together. And like, how long are you going to keep on doing this? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. This limping between two is actually you're not doing either or you're actually going after the false god in the name of maybe trying to fill your life with a sprinkling of, 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 uh, of truth. And the people did not answer him a word. But then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And I'm still scratching my head. Like, why did they even go for this? this? Why didn't they go, no, this is all silly, Elijah. You're making a big deal out of nothing. And it could simply be that, the, you know, you have the prophets of Baal, but the people themselves, the, the people, they, they, people don't do their research People, most people don't take time to actually think things through. Most people just, do, they do what the other person does. Oh, you must know better. I'll just do what you do. And uh, so Elijah the prophet, yeah, I've heard of him. And uh, he has a bit of a reputation. He's putting this challenge. Well, I guess, you know, if, if, the, if, the, if Baal's really a god, then he's going to do something. And this, this, this looks like fun. Let, let's just follow along with this thing. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. I, re- I, I, I really wonder if they thought anything was going to happen. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar, there's that limping again, that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry, uh, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. People get desperate, don't they? And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That's a, that's a, a water offering. For there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. You know, lies and falsehood cannot stand on their own. They can't actually withstand a true challenge. And I wonder if we're not seeing the crashing down of lies because too few of us are willing to stand for truth, like Elijah. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. He reconnects the people to the the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people might might know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned your heart, their hearts back. And I've been really struggling over this. Um, God, answer, they may know you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. He seems to be saying that, O oh God, if you come through, then the people will turn their hearts back to you or you've already turned their hearts back to you or it's something like you're giving them an opportunity to turn their hearts back to you. It, it could be that he was thinking that if God really came through, of course the people are going to realize that the Lord only is God. And again, it, it sort of highlights how people are, are sheep-like. So give them that great dr- dramatic demonstration and they're going to follow that rather than actually thinking for themselves and, and seeking to understand themselves what the truth really is. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. I love that. I, and the dust. And, like this was woof. Like, everything went, it disappeared. Amazing. And licked up the water that was in the, tr- in the trench. Elijah had the whole thing soaked to show that there's no tricks involved here. And, uh, and, and God obliterated the altar and everything on it. And I kind of wonder, why didn't he obliterate the people? Why didn't he obliterate the people? It was the people. The people deserved to be obliterated for following after disgusting evil gods. And yet, what does God do? He accepts the offering. He accepts the offering just like he accepts the offering of the Lord Jesus. We should be obliterated. But instead, he receives the offering and forgives the people. And as Elijah expected, the people immediately turned to the Lord. They were immediately recalibrated. Because they said, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Verse 40, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them, not one of them escape, and they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The question I need to ask, the question I'm asking you, I ask myself, are we limping? Are we limping between two opinions? In what ways are we trying to incorporate false gods, demons, into our worship of God? Some of us may not be worshiping God at all. And as I mentioned earlier, just because we may not be bowing to to a literal idol doesn't mean that we're not engaging demons through relying on other things. And as I've said in weeks before, relying on science and technology relying on the government as if it's our caretaker and God is an idol. Our our respect of government and our obedience to government must be under the lordship of Jesus. Whenever we put it over, for whatever reason, there's all sorts of reasons why we do that. 
We do that with our jobs. We do that with our close relationships. Anytime we take any relationship, we put it over God himself and make it our God. We are engaging demonic forces. Now, all week as I've been preparing this, I've been wondering if I should close the sermon by calling down fire from heaven. I've now decided I'm not going to take a vote. (laughs) But as I've wondered, oh God, what dramatic thing do you want to do at All Saints to show that you alone are God? What kept coming to me throughout the week is God saying, I've already come down. I've already come down. To think that these people did not have God's word in the way that we have it today. They didn't have copies of the books of Moses. In, in the northern kingdom, they probably hadn't heard the actual scriptures for generations. And yet we possess, many of us, multiple copies, digital and hard copies of this book. Also, we live in the messianic times God has come down and by faith in him, he has given us his spirit. Now that doesn't mean that from time to time, God doesn't want to show himself in great dramatic ways and may he do so. We need revival. I believe that. But at the same time, I believe the revival is always accessible to us if we would be willing to heed God's word and obey him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have come down in the person of your Son and that he allowed himself to be consumed instead of us. And that he not only was consumed, but he rose from the dead that we too might conquer death. But at the same time, Lord, we too often limp between two opinions. And in any way that we might be doing that, we pray that you would restore us to yourself, that you and you alone would be God, that you alone would be Lord. Show us, Lord, where we have compromised and help us to be fully loyal to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.